welcome to the Rebecca Panapinto Project. Today, I'm very excited to host an extremely interesting personality, and that is Russ Thomas. He is the chief executive officer for a healthcare company called Availity, and over the years, his vision has helped them diversify their solutions and grow their customer base to create an amazing foundation for rapid platform growth. Today, Availity connects more than 2 million providers and more than 1,000 technology partners to help plans all across the country, engaging with each other over 13 billion times per year. Under Russ's leadership, Availity is at the forefront of digital engagement solutions designed to reduce healthcare waste while improving patient care. Outside of his work with Availity, Russ is also active in many industry and philanthropic organizations. He serves as chair of the Healthcare Partnership for the Florida Chamber and is a member of the Board of Trustees for Jacksonville University. Russ also serves on the Board of Directors for Iodine Software, an industry leader in clinical information document solutions. He's also a licensed commercial pilot. Back in 2015, Russ was appointed to the Jacksonville Aviation Authority Board of Directors, and he also is an avid drummer and cyclist. Russ currently lives in Florida with his wife, Claudia, and their two children. And as you can see, there's never a dull moment. He's a super interesting personality, and I'm really excited for you to enjoy the show today. Russ Thomas, how are you? Hi, Rebecca. Good to see you. Good to see you, too, in your lovely, beautiful home office. I see some puppies <laughs> on the wall. Yeah, you know, it's taken two years to get it organized the way I want it, but it works pretty well. Do you go to the office at all anymore? If we get interrupted, I've got my uh, two COVID dogs in here with me, my two golden retriever puppies, and wow. we'll see how well they do over the next, you know, next few minutes. So that's awesome. Hey, they are more than welcome to participate. So. <laughs> Trust me, they will. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. We've known each other for a while now, so I was really excited to get to showcase all the incredible work you're doing at Availity. You have just a super interesting background and career to me, so I'm excited to talk about it today. And I really want to start with the first initial topic around digital transformation, but in the context of what you're doing, which you eat, sleep, and drink the healthcare payer world. So tell me about what digital transformation really means for you serving that industry specifically. Sure. Um, so look, I'll be, a, I'll be a little bit of a broken record in this conversation because you know I fundamentally believe digital transformation has very little to do with technology. Um, and really everything to do with user experience. You know, if you look at healthcare across the sector, it's such a fascinating place to work because I mean, you know, truly the largest sector of the economy um, and the most uh, fragmented sector of the economy. And I think those two forces combine to create a lot of com unnecessary complexity and frustration and inefficiency and opacity in the way that you know, ultimately, you and I, as consumers of healthcare, right, um, you know, go about the business of deciding, you know, do, do I need to go to a physician? Do I need medical care? And if so, you know, where do I find it? How do I get it? How do I schedule it? How do I pay for it? I mean, it's, you know, I, I joke that ability is a test of, you know, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, right? Because we've been at this now 20 years. And on one hand, you can look at it and go, hell, 20 years in, and uh, healthcare is at least as complex, if not more complex, as it was, you know, when, when the company was started in, in 2001. Um, you know, I'm a non-repentant optimist, and so I look at all that we've accomplished um, against, you know, very, very big uh, needs for healthcare reform, and feel like we're we are making progress along the journey, and that um, and that that progress is accelerating. Uh, now for a variety of factors. So, 
you know, back to the question, right? You know, digital transformation is all about creating a world-class user experience where if you're a provider, you know, you know, right information, right patient, right time to be able to more effectively practice medicine. If you're um, an administrative person, right? Right information, right time, uh, you know, right place to be able to bill and collect and, you know, run your business um, more efficiently. Um, if you're in the support staff side, right? You nurse practitioner or clinical coordinator, you know, how do we help those folks really have a um, efficient and elegant experience in getting the knowledge that they need to support their, you know, practitioners and, and again, ultimately drive to a better experience for you and you and me as consumers of healthcare. And as we go along today, we'll talk about, you know, I'm sure a couple of examples of what I think of there. So, I, you know, I get frustrated when I see people talking about, well, we're doing digital transformation with X and they name a technology, right? Whether it's AI or ML or blockchain or, you know, whatever the, the current fad is. I'm like, well, that's not digital transformation. That's technology. How are you applying that technology to really create a better user experience, better customer experience? Um, at least that's how I, that's how, I, you know, I'm a pretty simple minded person and that's how I have to think about it. That's good. I like it. Reminds me of a recent healthcare exchange that I had that made me laugh out loud because it was not digital at all. Um, But I had an MRI recently from a sports injury and wanted them to just, because I thought it was easy, email the MRI to my PT and we move Mm -hmm. on. I called them to make this request and they acted like I was an idiot. And we're like, no, we don't email this. We need their fax number. (laughs) (laughs) So like a goofball, I'm emailing my physical therapist. Do you have a fax number? Like, I don't. And I was just like, wow, this yeah. is crazy. Imagine like the frustration of the people who have to live that day in and day out. But that's the nature of where healthcare yeah. is. Healthcare is single-handedly keeping the fax industry alive. I think the only place. And paper. That I know of. And, and there are people out there who still think fax is you know, the most secure mechanism for transporting uh, PHI, right? Transporting patient data. And I kind of laugh. I'm like, well, I hope not because it's being faxed in and sitting on a machine somewhere. It doesn't feel very secure, but yeah, no, I, the sad thing is you described that experience, Rebecca, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not that surprised. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's the reality of healthcare. Um, but help us get a little more educated on specifically the payer side, because yeah. as a patient, in theory, if especially Vality's really knocking out of the park, you're not interfacing directly with a payer on a regular basis. So what is the really core elements of focusing on digital to help the payer side be successful so that it trickles down to these your experience for a patient? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so I think we've done, you know, the optimist side of it, right? Says we've done a we've done a very good job of automating um structured data workflows, transactional workflows, sort of the building blocks of the business relationship between a health plan and a, and a, and a provider, right? So running eligibility checks, you know, submitting claims, getting remittances, um, those core foundational, you know, HIPAA transactions, I think we do a very nice, a very nice job of those. And, you know, this year we'll transact 13 billion uh, uh, transactions through the availability network. And if you look at the, the claims volume through our network, we'll, we will carry claims with over 2.3 trillion of uh, dollars of build, build claims, right? Wow. So, so I think that's gone fairly well. And the vast majority of all that workflow is 
is um, digital, automated digital workflow. But I'll just use the, the, the facts to sort of get at where I think the opportunity is, right? So of the 2.3 trillion of claims billed through availability, maybe higher this year, 2.3 last year, the actual dollars uh, paid back to the providers. So providers are billing, you know, two and a half trillion dollars of claims through availability. The actual dollars paid back, reimbursed, will be maybe half of that, wow. right? So you look at that and you say, well, just within our network, and again, we're the largest network in all healthcare now, but we're still only, you know, just north of 50% of all activity, all healthcare activity. Um, but even just within our network, there's, you know, you can argue about all along, but is it a trillion and a half? Is it a trillion? Is it, you know, only 900 billion? The punchline is there's a tremendous amount of, of miss in that relationship. You know, why, basically you have providers who bill a dollar to collect 50 cents. And so the, the opportunity, I think, for digital transformation, and I think it's particularly true with, with the payer side, is how do you, so what's, what's causing that delta, right, between the, the $2 and the $1, or the $2.5 trillion and the, and the trillion or so that gets paid? And when you look at it, it's a lot of things, right? There's no silver bullet. It's, um, it's claims that are not coded properly. It's claims that aren't edited properly on the front end. So they come through with some things as silly as, you know, an address that the payer doesn't recognize for the provider. So that will get it kicked back. It comes in with um, and gets screened for medical necessity. Um, your example of the MRI, right? A claim comes in for that MRI and the provider did not get the pre-required authorization, right? So the claim gets denied because there was no prior authorization to perform that procedure. Um, so all of that adds up to a ton of confusion. And you and you and I as consumers who have deductibles are like, well, how could you possibly tell me at the point of service what I owe if you don't know what's ultimately going to be allowed and paid, right? So then you and I as consumers sit there going, well, I don't know if I owe a dollar. I don't know if I owe $200 or $1,000. <coughs> Excuse me. So, that's where you get a lot of confusion. Our vision for that, right, to solve that is, well, a lot of that happens because payers are, payers are really good at adjudicating claims. They're, they're claim systems that were built for that, right? They're big, you know, heavy-duty systems that were designed to move a lot of claims volume in, in um, you know, very effectively, right? But a lot of those processes are still batch-driven, latent kind of processes. So you end up on the back end of that uh, process with a lot of vendors who do things that you and I are both familiar with, like payment integrity, like coordination of benefits, like overpayment recovery, like, you know, because the, the plan paid to the $2 and not hours, but sometimes, you know, weeks later, figure out or months later, figure out, well, I should have only paid the dollar. And now they're trying to claw those dollars back from the provider, which imagine your business or my business is, you know, if you not only build your customer, but they paid you and then came back, you know, a month and a half, two months later and said, oh, by the way, I overpaid you. I need money back. So our vision for all of this, right, where we think we can really help drive more efficiency and a more effective and a more transparent system is to, to, to look downstream at those latent uh, processes and move that workflow up all the way into what we would call our gateway. So 
really to the point where we are now interacting in real time with the provider around their claim to make sure that when we finally move that claim through to the payer, that it's going to be adjudicated properly, that it's going to be for the right, same thing, right? Right patient, you know, right procedure, right dollar amount paid as quickly as possible, hopefully in real time. And I think, you know, what we say to our payers, and we have, you know, literally hundreds of payers that we do business with, and I think we're now up to like 35, where we are their exclusive gateway for all their connectivity, we say, look, let us take care of things like user experience, a smarter front end, a smarter gateway, leveraging new technologies like AI, you know, AI machine learning, whatever it may be, to um, understand exactly how that thing should be built, or we need you guys to focus is within your systems to make sure that we can move that data appropriately up into that pre-service or, or pre-claim submission gateway. And the fact that I even, you know, I've been here now for, you know, 15 years. And the fact that I even can describe this scares me sometimes, right? Because yeah. <laughs> I've been at it for so long, but, um, but that's exactly where I think there's an opportunity for McKinsey's opined on this as recently as, yeah. you know, in the last two months. And, you know, there's a trillion dollars of potential savings in just creating a better administrative workflow experience, more efficient experience that, um, that makes it easy for at the end of the day is, you know, your North star, right. Is how do you make it easy for a doctor to, to see you for your ankle or to see me for my, my hip or whatever it may be, to, to know that it, whatever I need to do is approved, to perform the procedure, submit a bill, and get paid as quickly as possible. Because that's what providers ultimately want. Yeah, no, that's good. So I think about this scenario, especially because I recently experienced it, as an individual contributor who likes to be driven by incentives. <laughs> yeah. Is there a human element and an incentive piece to all this, like to help people go about it differently? Well, um, I think it starts with strategy, right? And I think, um, you know, candidly, the, the, the more thoughtful health plans, um, and there are a lot of them, right? Who are really thinking about this provider experience, provider engagement, and looking at it and saying, well, there's multiple bad things that happen when you have a bad provider experience, right? You, 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 you as the payer incur a lot of costs that you don't need to incur, right? Because for every phone call a provider makes, a health plan has to answer the phone call. So that's inefficient. And you're just creating this, you know, sort of abrasive relationship with your providers. It makes it really hard to think about doing things and helping providers do things that could really matter. Like, better care management, better utilization management, better care coordination between providers. So at the top of the house in a lot of our health plan customers, they are laser focused on their provider engagement strategies. They have a variety of names for them, you know, provider strong, you know, uh, continuous provider, you know, engagement, things like that. But the, the common theme is we've squeezed all the juice we can out of, you know, sort of brute force tactics. Now we really have to find ways to collaborate better with our providers and give them a better experience in order to, to, to frankly drive the kind of consumer experience that pays our bills, right? Because we've got to drive premium dollars and, and more customers. And, you know, word on, you know, word is out that providers actually care about this stuff and they talk to their patients. Yeah. So the incentive structures are getting aligned around driving that better uh, that better patient experience. Now, look, I mean, automation, which is 
a lot of what we're talking about here, you know, automation ultimately means jobs, you know, titles, the way people work, what they do has to change. You know, yeah. I love the book, you know, who moved my cheese. The answer is there's a lot of cheese that needs to get moved around. Mm-hmm. And um, that's true in every sector, but I think particularly true in, in healthcare. And um, again, the smart people are going to adapt and learn and realize that, yeah, you know, my job of answering the phone or my job of taking that, go back to the example, story, my job of taking the piece of paper off the facts, setting it down in front of my computer and hand entering that data into my, you know, utilization management system is going away. Thank God, right? It needs to go away. Yeah. So how can I be a, a valuable employee, a valuable associate by finding ways to make that a better experience and, and to be a part of that automation of healthcare instead of being a, frankly, a, you know, a victim of it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. In my whole experience, just thinking of how it kind of resolved to uh, a satisfaction survey, like within hours of us hanging up with our follow-up telemedicine appointment. And I would say everything was positive. The only negative is there was no sense of urgency and there was no sense of urgency because they were themselves in a holding pattern of who's going to pay for this. How does this work? And just trying to manage the communication path, which is yeah. crazy. Well, and that you're 100% right. And with an injury like you or I have, right, an orthopedic injury, you can afford to hold a bit. Right? I mean, you want to get it fixed, but right, it's generally not, you know, sort of life or death. But there are a lot of situations where that's not true, right? Where the decision to do an MRI, I had this, you know, I think I've told this story before, right? When, when our daughter, when she was, you know, 12 or 13 and had a brain infection and only because the physician, you know, did a scan, you know, did a, did a, um, a visit with her and examined her and said, Hey, I think there's something more than a sinus infection here. Let's get an MRI. And that was, an, you know, that, that MRI happened at 9am and at, you know, 6am the next morning, they're wheeling her in for brain surgery. Right. Wow. And only because I think you and I are, are because we're in the healthcare system, we know how to to get things done, you know, only because I've quickly started to, when they said we want to order the MRI, it was, but we need to get the authorization and it's after hours. Like, I don't care. I'm going to go get the authorization right now. And that truly, you know, that was a life or death situation for her. Unfortunately, the surgery worked and she's hundred percent now and, you know, enjoyed her freshman year at, at college, but this stuff, you know, you could look at what availability does and say, well, at the end of the day, you're just, you just help with building, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's kind of important. And, you know, the, the tangential effect of making sure that that administrative process works well affects people's lives every day. So, yeah. um, so that's why I think we all need to have a sense of urgency to, to, to solve these issues. Yeah. I mean, you think of why does every business need a CFO? Like there has to be the money handled somehow. Absolutely. So it's a huge part of the overall healthcare system, which leads me to a, a question that I have for you that I've actually always wondered and probably just never directly asked, but why healthcare? Why do you love healthcare? Is it because there's big problems to solve? What's the draw? Uh, you know, I mean, um, you know, I'm the happiest ex-lawyer on the planet um, because I had an early career in practicing law and decided I, you know, I'm not the smartest kid on the block. So it took me 10 years to figure out it's not what I wanted, not what I want to do for the rest of my life. But nice. um, it, I sort of lucked into it. I, there was this little company I was representing that was in healthcare data, um, clinical data exchange or clinical data um, system, clinical knowledge basis. And, um, 
you know, I probably wasn't passionate about it when I first got into it, but you know, like you, right. I like to identify problems and help solve them. And, you know, thank God, you know, healthcare is full of problems to solve. Um, and I think over the, you know, 20 plus years I've now been in healthcare, I've had enough personal experiences and had enough friends and family and colleagues with personal experiences to see just how much opportunity for improvement there is in healthcare that, you know, if you, if you can't get up every day and get excited about, about fixing the healthcare system, I don't know what you can get excited, excited about. Yeah, that's good. So I want to talk about availability specifically now as it's beautifully across your shirt. Um, like such a cool company. I mean, the culture is awesome. Everybody I've ever met that works for you just loves it. Have you know a ton of tenure there. So tell us about your passion for the company. You've been there a long time. Yeah, it's it's your baby. I'm the old I'm the old guy now, Rebecca. I mean, when I first <laughs> got there, I was you know forty. What was I? Right, forty two or something like that. Okay. And I hate to admit this, but you know I'm I'm now counting down the months until I turn sixty, which is yes. just hard to imagine. Um, but no, it's such a great it's such a great company. Right? I mean, what Julie started in two thousand one. I came on in 2000, uh, 2008. You know, what she started, though, was, you know, there's just this mission, right? It's just this, this came, you know, the, the original availability tagline was patients, not paperwork. Okay? Right, cool. And you can still do that today because that's really what it's about. It's to, it's to empower providers to practice medicine and not have to deal with all the nonsense caught up in that business relationship between them, their patient, and the health plan. Um, but the thing I love about availability is, you know, now we're 20 years old, right? We're the largest health information network, you know, there is. Um, we've grown, I think when I got here, we were 150 or so people. Now we're 1,300, you know, domestic and another couple of hundred in our um, India operation. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it still feels like a small company, you know, it still has that sort of very innovative, um, creative, thoughtful feel. And, um, I think that starts at the top, right? I, I love culture building. I just think it's so important to, to do really well. Um, it's hard, right? It takes a lot of work. Uh, we are blessed to have a phenomenal team. I don't know if you've noticed, but you know, even since you and I started talking, we've you know, we have revitalized our executive team. We've got, you know, hired a new chief growth officer who again is just one of those Leslie Antunas, who's just a very creative and innovative you know, hard charging person and had a great CFO and uh, hired uh, last year um, a new chief operating officer, a guy named Jim McNary, who uh, is just a rock star, um, super successful. He's actually, he was a CEO of Consortium Health Plans and came over to join us. And I joke all the time, I, I talk about his pedigree and I say, yeah, and on top of all of his accolades, he's a former Navy SEAL team commander. So Wow. Someday when I retire and, and Jim takes over, I get to say, hey, it took a Navy SEAL to replace me. <laughs> I love it. That's but awesome. no, it's just phenomenal, right? And um, we just hired and just started three weeks ago a new um, chief product officer, a woman named Bobby Kalunai from IBM. Um, cool. And then we got a new chief strategy officer who started literally this week, uh, uh, Nathan Von Kolditz from McKinsey. Um, super talented, super talented guy and that's just sort of at the top of the house and then you look throughout the ranks and throughout the organization and I think people come to availability because 
you know, if you look at our, you know, we're, we're a great place to work, right? Registered great place to work company. If you look at our glass door ratings, we're well north of 90% of, you know, people who would recommend us to a friend. And I think it's because we're just very transparent and open, right? Every person on the senior leadership team has an open door policy. I mean, there's nobody in the organization that you can't go talk to where, you know, this is how I dress every day, right? We're just, we're just, we just have adopted that culture um, and it works, it works really well. well. And then I think we have a cause. I mean, there's a, there's McKinsey actually has a report out now that talks about, you know, for, for CEOs, it says, you know, what is it that motivates people? And 70% of people surveyed said, I'm motivated by the cause. I want to know that my company has a cause and has a mission that I can believe in. Yes, compensation matters, benefits matter. That's, that is uh, table stakes for me to come to you. And, and, um, and I think we have a great cause that people can buy into. And, and then we've been smart about things like, you know, go back to work and how we've managed COVID. And, you know, again, we'll talk a little bit later about sort of things I believe in, but one thing I absolutely believe is look, we're all adults, right? Mm-hmm. You have a job. It's our job as management leadership to make sure that you understand your role and how you will be um, measured and how you should hold yourself accountable. Right? I don't believe that mm-hmm. I don't believe that anybody holds anybody else accountable for anything. I think you hold yourself accountable for, for things. And um, I think we've done a nice job of making sure people know what their responsibilities are and how to hold themselves accountable. And because of that, you know, we've been out of the office now to be two years on March 10th, and we're probably more productive uh, remote than we ever were, you know, in our in our two physical uh, footprints. And um, and because of that, we've been able to say to folks, look, we are not rushing back to anything. We're going to be super thoughtful about how and when we go back. I was in the office yesterday because I wanted to go in. There's some people I wanted to see that I knew would be in. I'm not in the office today. Um, and I think we can create that kind of dynamic going forward and uh, and continue to give people that kind of optionality uh, in their lives, as long as they're willing to be adults and do their jobs and hold themselves accountable. Oh, that's good. I like it. And one thing I'll say about you that I, I think I caught on the second I met you is that you're super accessible. And so I'm sure that's true of your team too. I'm curious if there's an area where that can be distracting and like how you then balance on the other side, time management, driving yeah. vision. Like, how do you manage like, yeah, open door policy, but we still do have big goals that we're charging yeah. towards. Yeah, I, I, you're right. It's a good point. Um, I think people are very respectful of it. So just because the door is open doesn't mean I'm standing in the doorway um, every day. Uh, and I think that's true with the senior, senior team. Um, we, and we've created very, very, our chief human resources officer, a woman named um, Jessica Machichi, is just phenomenal. And with her leadership, we've created, back to digital, right? We've created digital engagement uh, uh, processes within Availity. Um, you know, teams we use extensively. I mentioned to you we're huge Zoom uh, fans. We were uh, one of the early adopters in healthcare of, of Zoom. Um we use uh, Microsoft 360 very effectively. Um, so we're always on teams and driving collaboration with teams. And then we have a reward and recognition system that um, as a leadership team, we challenge each other every month to see who can you know, be most engaged in our uh, reward and recognition system. So when you have that kind of you know, real-time, real, right? It has to be real, it can't be fake, but we have that kind of real-time engagement um, I think people feel closer to the leadership team. Um, 
And so I think we use those really effectively, which gives people, you know, access uh, to us. Which, yeah, especially in the environment where they're sitting in their living rooms. If you don't feel that, it can feel like an island really, really fast. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. So you have all these incredible people in incredible roles, but I'm curious, what is Russ Thomas the best in the world at and the best in the company at? Like, is it the payer relationship, the customers, like what, I guess, as part of the leadership team lights you up and gets you excited every day to tackle? Well, we know what I'm not best in the world at, and that's okay. because you kicked my ass three years ago in the, in the great <laughs> oh, yeah. run off. We know what I'm not the best in the world at. And by the way, that list is long. Um, yeah, you know what? I think that one of the things I do super well is the relationship side of it. Um, we have always had a complex ownership structure at Availability. I'm, I think you're aware of this, but you know, we've got four of the largest health plans in the country, and now the, the largest, um, it's interesting, we recapitalized the company last summer. We have had Francisco Partners in as an investor. They were great. We ran a process last summer to recap them out and bring in a new sponsor. And uh, we, uh, we ran a great, you know, very effective process and ended up with uh, Novo Holdings as our new um, equity sponsor. And Novo Holdings is the investment arm of the Novo Foundation, which is the largest private foundation in the world, right, in the world. And um, they mesh really well with our um, health plan investors, right? Long-term strategic investors that are mission uh, driven. Um, So, but I think to that point, right? Managing that sort of complex ownership and board dynamic um, is something that uh, I do, I think really well. uh, And I enjoy it a lot. Um, And then, being the you know a face, I think important face to our customers is uh, something that I just absolutely love uh, doing, and I think do fairly well um, also on both the provider and the health plan um, side of it. So I think the team would say, yeah, that's where we like to put him to work the most effectively, and that also gives him this busy bone to keep him out of things we don't want him involved in. <laughs> nice, I like it. I think yeah, in the greater industry of healthcare you live out that accessible kind of uh, trait as well. And that's why a lot of opportunity comes your way. And every once in a while I get to get on stage and get shown up by, by you on the, on the, <laughs> we can share this YouTube video for those of, of interest. It still lives. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> oh, funny story, by the way. Uh, Coming up on the show soon is Jason Aldean's drummer. Oh, wow. Who has a digital transformation project. And that was the the song that I played was a Jason Aldean tune called um, Dirt Road. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of yeah, fun. Played it, very, played it very, very well. It was a unanimous Thanks. crowd uh, uh, win on your part. I love it. That was good times. So on more the personal side, there's another part of you I thought was always intriguing that when you decide to come to Nashville, you just get in your private plane and you come to Nashville. (laughs) So at some point along being a lawyer and running a company, you went ahead and got your pilot's license as well. What was the inspiration for that? And how does that fit into your day-to-day now? I see a a plane in the background there too. That's that's actually the uh, deal toy from when we closed the Francisco partners round. And um, it is the plane that I, that I fly, but they turned it into a deal toy. But um, yeah, I mean, I I haven't flown that long. We're flying now. I guess it's getting longer every day, but, you know, eight years or so. 
Um, and it was just one of those, I kind of always been intrigued by it. And I've had a little bit of time sitting, you know, right seat, uh, when we would charter a plane every once in a while mm-hmm. and, uh, took my son to a football game. I'm a rabid Alabama football fan. So I, he and I flew up to Tuscaloosa to watch Alabama play, play. And we chartered this little, uh, single engine piston plane. And, um, the, the charter pilot let me sit, uh, up front with him. My son had no interest in it. He's like, yeah, I'm sitting back and sleep, right? But uh, he let me sit up front, this little four-seater plane that we chartered. And uh, Michael, like, well, this is kind of interesting. I think I could do this. And he's like, well, come take a lesson, right? Took the first lesson, came back for the second, fell in love with it. Love everything about it. Love flying. Love that it's hard to do, you know, and it's complex. Uh, so I believe in continuous learning. And so for a number of years there, I was just a student of, of, um, you know, becoming a pilot and really, you know, sort of, you know, I, it's something that you have to be incredibly safe in the way that you do it. So, you know, I, I worked hard and got my basic license. Then I went straight through and got my instrument uh, rating so I could fly in uh, weather you know, conditions. And then I went straight through and got my commercial uh, rating as well, because, you know, I'll never, never say never, but it's unlikely that I ever fly commercially, but it just makes you a better pilot, right? The things you have to learn and do and the, the, uh, the uh, um, skill set and the tolerances for errors at the commercial level are much, uh, are much lower uh, than they are at the basic level. And um, yeah, and, and it's a great way to get around, quite frankly. Um, yeah. I fly a single engine uh, jet, um, have my jet uh, rating for the, the Cirrus aircraft. And it's, I'll use that example because it, it's a digital transformation story I'll talk about, I think, probably a little bit. But um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a great way to get around and I, and I love doing it. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one of the fun things that I like to do. It has to take intense focus, I would think. Yeah. So when, you have a meeting flying, in Nashville and you're flying yourself. Does that yeah. help you get in the zone, get really well? Yeah, I, think it, I think it does. And, um, you know, I've resisted putting Wi-Fi in my plane because um, when I'm, I just don't want to be bothered. You know, it's yeah. a great time. I mean, the reality is once you're flying, you, you know, you're on autopilot and particularly if you're flying along a long leg, it's a couple of three hours of just uninterrupted, quiet uh, time. Um, and you can do a lot of thinking, you know. Uh, you can do some work, right? Un- disconnected. It's amazing how many emails you can get through if you're disconnected. And but for me, it's just a, a great place to sort of recharge. And um, yeah, and you know, it's the thing I love about it is 90% of the time it is um, dull and uneventful. But there's probably 10% of the time when you really got to be on your game, and um, particularly if you're flying in weather or at night or you know certain types of or areas that you're not used to. And, uh, and I love the challenge of the challenge of that. Very cool. What about a helicopter? Nope. Fly those two? Just they don't planes. fly. Well, helicopters don't fly. Oh, really? It's different. Well, the rotor is flying, but uh, no, when the rotor stops spinning, you're in, you're in a brick as opposed to an airplane, which will glide. Right. I mean, the plane itself, yeah. the wings of the plane fly. So yes, you need, thrust to keep moving but hmm. from I mean, we're a little bit off topic but you know in my plane from thirty-one thousand feet i can glide 50 miles oh wow i can find an airport to get to and land at without power so um that's not really really good chopper pilots can 
you know, do this thing they call counter rotating to try to land softly, but you're still coming down <laughs> pretty fast. So no, no, zero interest in flying an airplane, zero interest in jumping out of or flying a, a helicopter, zero interest in jumping out of an airplane. People are like, oh, you want to do skydiving? I'm like, why would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? <laughs> I love it. I did it once out near you in Tampa, but yeah, I think I, I'm good. Got it out of my system. Uh, yeah, so. that's not me. So yeah, please share with us because I think it's a super intriguing story that what yeah. being a pilot and flying has taught you about digital. Yeah, so so I there's a there's a great example of digital transformation in aviation, and um, and that's the evolution from um, sort of legacy, you know, instrumentation to what's called glass cockpit, right? So you know, old school, right? And I had to had to learn to fly these and and um and use them, but old school, you know, if you think about the dashboard and the cockpit of a plane, it's, you know, you have your altimeter, you have, you know, your barometer, you have your attitude indicator, and they're all different um, mechanisms, right? Different pieces of equipment that um, are on that dashboard, but they aren't integrated in any meaningful uh, way. So you've got to you talk about doing your scans, right? Particularly in those old systems in the six pack, because usually you have three across and three on the bottom. You talk about doing a six pack and working your way around and doing your scans. And it works, obviously, and worked for many, many years. But um, you know, one of the reasons you have multi, you know, pilot requirements in a lot of aircraft is because the complexity of trying to manage, you know, flying an airplane and aviating and navigating at the same time um, is complex. What and I give Garmin credit because I think they've done it. You know, but anyone, what Garmin has done is digitize that entire experience. So there are now onboard computers that take inputs from all of those data centers, right? And integrate those inputs into a single user experience that sits on a, you know, eight inch, 10 inch, or in my case, on in two 14 inch screens, right? That truly look like a video game screens. And you're getting that input in a single location integrated uh, with each other, uh, right? So your ability to um, you know, descend on autopilot or to climb on autopilot or to think ahead and say, look, I know that you know, if I have to be at this altitude by this location, I can actually set a, um, uh, an alarm or not even alarm, set a, 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 a point at which the plane will automatically start to descend down to that appropriate one really then frees you up as a pilot to focus on flying the, air, the airplane. And they've done this in such, I mean, I just give them credit. I'm a Garmin fan. I use them on my bike computers and you know everywhere else. And the elegance of the user experience that they've built um, is one that I think healthcare can learn a lot from. And certainly in other sectors, they've done it as well. But this is one that's, that's, that's sort of special to me because, I mean, it, I literally put my life in their hands, right? Every time I go up in the aircraft that, a, it will work, and there's, I think there's little tolerance for error in healthcare. There's, you know, very, very low tolerance for error, which is why you have redundancy of all those systems. But um, the way that they've just made it such an elegant experience from the pilot perspective has, I think, think about think about healthcare. One made it more efficient to fly, which I would love to think has reduced the cost. Made it so much safer um, to fly, and from the pilot's perspective, just made it a better, uh, a better experience. Um, so that's to me, if we can do it in healthcare, that user experience that, that Garmin has created um, in aviation, if we could replicate that in healthcare, I think that's a 
Because when you talk to providers, right, you talk to their assistances, God, this is complicated, you know, and not just making the phone call, but even the user experience and some of the digital platforms that are out there, right, is, well, yeah, when it works, it's great, but A, it doesn't work for all of my payers, right? Um, and B, you know, I don't always get a consistent result, so I don't trust it, so I have to pick up the phone anyway. And that's not a great experience for anybody, and that's not taking cost out of the system. Yeah. Well, that's good. I never thought of Garmin in an airplane context either. I'm like, wow, that's really cool that they're using their incredible technology that I use in a racing context yeah, with absolutely. my Strava, and they can handle it with flying too. Very interesting. 100%. Yeah, no, it's it's phenomenal. I love it. Well, I want to wrap our time together with one final question, Russ. And mm. that is, what is a guiding principle that you've lived by to ultimately be successful in business? I told you about one guiding principle. You, you didn't even believe it. I, I do believe that tequila solves all problems. Medical, emotional, physical, it's the wonder drug. Um, but uh, on a more serious note, um, yeah, it's actually really simple. Like it's just do the right thing. Do the right thing, right? I love the expression, you know, integrity is what you do and nobody's looking. Um, and it it is. And I think, you know, A, that's how I was raised. Uh, and, and B, you know, healthcare is a very small, you know this, right? You've been in it for a long time. It's a small sector. If you're not a ethical, high integrity uh, person, um, that, you know, that's, well-known and is not good for your company or your career. So, um, so I think just doing the right thing, you know, is super important, not just in your profession, but in your personal life as well. And, you know, doesn't mean I always get it right, but I always sort of ask myself, you know, what's the right thing to do here, right? Not what's the expedient thing or the most cost-efficient thing or the thing that's going to drive the most profit for us. But, and, and I think if you do the right thing, that'll lead to a sustainable just uh, that leads to sustainable results, which is how we built um, availability over uh, 20 years. You know, there were shortcuts we could have taken and things we could have done, you know, to make it easier. But I think we, by and large, you know, always try to do the right thing as a company. And again, I think that come it all it all it all plays back, right? It's why you have, you know, I think our engagement scores are in the 90s, and our, you know, like I said, our Glassdoor ratings, and it's just that, that all that all pays off. Yeah, I like to call it the long game. Yeah, you got to play the long game. It's exactly right. Uh, it's right. so easy to be short-sighted because attention spans these days are just smaller and smaller and smaller. But when it comes to business, when it comes to people, the long game serves you so much better. Well, it's like athletics, right? You're an athlete. It's like training, right? I mean, I ride, as you know, you know, I ride, I yeah. ride a ton. And I did this awesome cross-country bike race last summer and. I trained really hard for that, right? To get ready for that. And there were a lot of days on that, particularly, you know, now I live in Florida, so I can't complain about the weather, but, you know, it gets dark early and you end up on the trainer and, you know, the trainer just wears me out. I hate, and it's a great trainer, right? But I just, it just gets monotonous. And there are a lot of times I'm like, God, I don't feel like riding anymore. I'm going to stop. And I was doing some really long trainer rides to prepare for it, like, you know, four and five hour trainer runs, right? Okay. And I just wanted to stop, but I knew that if I stopped, then three months later, when I was out there in the middle of, you know, the desert somewhere trying to get across the desert, that was going to come back and bite me. Um, so you get, you do, you have to play the long, the long game to be successful long-term. Good. Well, Russ, 
Oh, awesome. treat. You're this awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What thanks blast. for the time today. Great to see you. Likewise. We'll catch up again here soon. All right, Rebecca. Thank you.